Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, a podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden, from the channel Like Stories of Old, where we explore the depth of what cinema has to offer. This week, we're going to be talking about Todd Field's Tar. And before we get into that, if you want to support the podcast and help us continue making these episodes, the best way to do that is by listening on Nebula. If you go to nebula.tv slash cinema of meaning, you can find the podcast there. When you listen on Nebula, you get the episodes an entire week early and without any ads like this. The best way to do that is by listening on Nebula. You can go to nebula.tv slash cinema of meaning or click the link in the description below. There you can listen to the episodes an entire week early and without any ads and listening there supports us. You also get access to a monthly bonus episode. There's more information about that in the description below. But Tom, let's get into Todd Field's Tar. This is a movie I watched back in December and was kind of, I had no expectations going into this really. I just knew mm -hmm. it was kind of a weird movie involving classical music and Kate Blanchett. And I was very intrigued and it really surprised me. I was not, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting, but this movie was something completely different from whatever expectations I had going into it. Uh, and I was very intrigued and immediately wanted to watch it again because it's very mm -hmm. dense. There's a lot of detail. I finally got to watch it a second time yesterday. I'm really interested to to discuss it with you. But what's been your journey? Did you just watch this? And, and kind of what were your first impressions? It's, it's, it's kind of the same as yours. Um, I watched it last year. I also included it in my best of the year video. Um, where I described it as a Dostoevskian nightmare, basically. <laughs> yeah. Both because uh, Dostoevsky is known for writing these really complicated and three-dimensional characters. And I felt like this character, Lydia Tarr, was one of the most well-realized characters of the last year. Like I had to check as I was watching this movie, like, wait, is this, uh, is this a biography? Is this real? Because yeah. she's so grounded in history basically in uh you know not just her the fields we see her in as a conductor but she's also mentioned as having won an oscar she's done ethnographic work in or research in south america or, or somewhere and you know she's there's so much detail that you, you get basically you get like a whole biography of this person and that i don't know that's something that i felt was just so unique and then the second part, yeah. like the nightmarish part, is because I felt like it kind of plays around with your sense of reality. Um, like it, at, at first glance, it feels like it's a very objectively filmed story. Like you see Lydia Tarr, she's kind of going about her life, which is about to unravel because she's kind of a, this abusive person or she's abused her position of power and, you know, stuff is coming to light and it's it's basically this cancellation story. That's what it's been described as a lot. But at the same time, there's this kind of gothic horror-ish element to it where, you know, she's seen having nightmares. There's kind of these, not necessarily visions, but she's hearing things that may or may not be there. You know, there's the, like she wakes up and there's the metronome ticking in the office yeah. and then she blames her adopted daughter. But she says she wasn't there. So, you know, what to believe, like what, what is reality, basically. I don't think that's the essence of the movie, to watch every scene and wonder, is this actually happening or is this just going on in her head, like with the final scene or the not the final scene, the sort of final comeuppance where she attacks the other conductor that takes her place towards the end. Like, is that something that really happens or is that a vision of some kind or... You know, you can question all these things and I think the movie plants enough doubt in your mind to raise that question. But at the same time, I feel like that's not, it, it's more like what that is in service of. That's right. what, what fascinates me, the way kind of viewing this movie through a more subjective lens makes it more about Lydia's subconscious instead of her kind of objectively observed life and uh, yeah, that's something that uh, I thought was fascinating, especially on the second viewing, because I, I also watched it again uh, earlier today, actually. And if you really kind of assume that 
position, that kind of framework, then the movie for me really opens up into something more special. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of layers here and that complexity and and sort of density of information you're talking about, I think Mm -hmm. is really impressive because not only is it not based on a true story, but usually with a movie like this, it's an adaptation from a book, even something like The Godfather or whenever we just have like a very, very dense character study with it, it feels like there's such a fully realized character and world and there's so much information that you just have this sense that something has to exist outside. This movie is about something mm-hmm. that exists outside of the movie. Uh, and I think that's impressive to pull off. Uh, and I, I wonder, you know, it's been, I haven't, this is actually the first Todd Field movie I've seen. I, I want to go back and watch his other stuff, but he hadn't made anything in 12 years. I don't yeah. know much about the process of writing this, but I wonder to what extent, like, some of that just comes from he had year, literal years to just kind of like stew on and develop. Probably not that entire time, this one story, but, you know, mm-hmm. l- longer than the average amount of sort of gestation time that maybe a screenplay gets. But it's it's got some impressive performances. And I think what you're saying as well, the sort of more fantastical elements or, or not fantastical, but like kind of expressionistic there's these weirder dreamlike elements, but they Mm. kind of sneak up on you because the style of the movie is very naturalistic for the most part. It doesn't, it's not hyper stylized. The lighting's very, you know, natural. The camera doesn't move Mm. in weird ways. It's, it's shot in this very just straightforward, mostly static. Yeah. Yeah. And so when that stuff kind of starts to like creep into it, not to get, too deep into the movie, but like the moment where I had this realization of like, oh, there's more going on here than just we're seeing this was the scene where she goes down into the basement and she sees the wolf uh, mm. or the dog or whatever it is. Mm. And th- that's that was a moment for me where I was kind of like, oh, we're we're like deeper into seeing Tar's kind of subconscious here. We're not maybe not just necessarily seeing Mm-hmm. kind of quote unquote the objective view of of what's happening not that i'm saying that that was specifically a vision i think ultimately like my take on it was that most of what we see besides the obvious dream stuff like her in the bed like burning or, or you know mm-hmm. that kind of thing i think most of what we see happens but there's more there's a heightened sense of like the way in which it's presented is maybe a little bit putting us inside Tar's perspective. One thing maybe uh, we should talk about, and then I think we can branch out from there most easily, is I think, you know, the obvious kind of theme that's running through this movie is, like you said, it's about a character who gets canceled. It's about Mm -hmm. her sort of abuse of power. And that's kind of the main through line. But I think it's, it's doing like some interesting things with approaching that theme and story that we haven't seen yet. Like even though cancellation, cancel culture has been explored from a couple, you know, several angles in film by now, this is one that is about a woman. And it's also one that is from the, pretty explicitly from the perspective of the character being canceled. Hmm. And I, I don't know if that's something we've gotten, at least if we've gotten it, we haven't gotten it in this way. And I said a couple times talking about this movie that I think it's about a lot more than just cancel culture, but that's like kind of a core that it starts with and then I think starts to like expand beyond. So I don't know if we want to maybe start there and, and mm-hmm. then we can move on. But what was your thoughts about how this was engaging with sort of like those topics and themes? Yeah, uh, just to one more time, bring it back to Dostoevsky, like it reminded me the most sure. of his book, Crime and Punishment which is basically a similar type story where you have this character who is kind of arrogant and kind of self-righteous. And in that grandiosity, he commits a murder. And then the rest of the novel is basically him trying to deal with that, both in the literal terms, as he's kind of trying to evade the police that's zeroing in on on him, but also like subconsciously as he's kind of unexpectedly or to him, to his own surprise, kind of being haunted by his own conscience yeah 
Yeah, yeah. That's kind of, for me, the universal story beneath the cancellation part. You know, the cancellation stuff that's, that does feel like it's some, something that's very much from our time, but I feel like beneath there, there is just the more classical tragedy of someone who, you know, the, the tragedy in the classical sense, if I'm not mistaken, is specifically a story about someone who causes their own downfall through a fault in their own character. You know, they might even have like the right intentions. They might feel like they're doing the right thing. But at the end of the day, they have this flaw, this sin or whatever leads them to their own ruin. And that's also kind of what happens here. So I, I like that it at the same time, it feels very timely while also fe feeling very timeless. Yeah. So yeah, that's like in the most general sense, how I feel about the thematic structure of it or the kind of the, the thematic flow of the story. But yeah, as you said, for me, it's more the execution of it and not so much exactly the underlying structure that fascinates me because it's for me the, the way the story is told, which is just very interesting and very unusual also because it, it kind of starts in this pretty radical you know, quietly radical way where you have this very long conversation that's basically about the main character. You know, there's uh, this long interview where I'm not sure how long it went on, maybe 10, 15 minutes, which, but, yeah. but even that in itself, you know, just opening your two and a half hour movie with your main character being interviewed about themselves, that already that breaks so many rules. It's in a really dense sort of way to where... You're, there's a lot of like classical name dropping, you, classical music name dropping. They're talking about composers. There's some inside baseball. I noticed it, he very deftly in the writing does a good job of sort of balancing, like throwing out some stuff that probably your average viewer is just not going to understand unless you understand the world mm -hmm. of classical music or which I don't know that much about, you know, uh, if I'm being honest. So there's stuff that's coming at you in that initial talk that's kind of over your head, but there's also stuff that is dropped in there that is kind of quietly setting up, like doing some exposition, laying mm. some of the groundwork for kind of what's going to be explored throughout the movie. But then it also, that scene, I feel like, we'll get to the the ending ending later but like that scene you don't really understand i think what that scene is until you can kind of see the the movie as a whole and understand yeah. kind of what it is in juxtaposition to where the movie's going i think the other thing to say about the the beginning is we you talked about the the haunting there's an opening like sequence where we see a text message yeah. which then ends up being the actual opening shot of the movie that is the actual yeah. opening shot of the movie is this kind of like text message conversation over a video. We don't, we don't understand exactly what it is. The, the, the second time I watched it, it felt very peculiar to me because I, I on first viewing, I, I assumed it was the assistant. But right. on the second viewing, it feels more like this detached kind of observer that's judging from a distance. It's at, Because it's simultaneously like live streaming and commenting on what's happening. So it feels like that's, it feels more like a sort of audience gaze or yeah. like the, the kind of a specter that's haunting her. I think it's sort of a flash forward and it's the celloist oh. on the private jet. Because if I'm getting my details correctly, I haven't I haven't confirmed this visually, but that opening shot where she's kind of zonked out in the private jet, there's that scene where she gets she gets on the jet to go to New York. Uh, she's like, oh, there's one more. And then we find out that it it's the celloist when she arrives in New York. She this, She's wearing like the same outfit in both of those. And then at the like book reading that she's in New York for with the celloist, we find out that at the book reading, the celloist is also doing the same thing. It's a little bit confusing because we see the yeah. assistant doing the same thing uh, on their first trip to New York where she stays in that suite with the piano and the mm -hmm. the. Uh, assistant whose name is escaping me played by Francesca uh, Nomi yeah Francesca we see her doing that same thing yeah. with the piano and there's some room that she's staying in she's like she's she thinks she's being ironic so I don't know if they're messaging each other if they're just doing the same thing if there's some kind of 
mm. you know, just like mirroring there between them. But I think that first shot is one from the celloist and it's yeah. just a, uh, a I like, flash forward. Yeah, because I like that it establishes, it's one of those little scenes that you can overanalyze to death, basically, because you do see in the yeah. text, it says, oh, she's that she's haunted or it, it's, uh, yes. I'm not sure what the exact text reads, but it, I know the word haunted is in there. And then we see yeah. that as she is unconscious. So you can kind of argue yeah. from there that, that her unconsciousness and her being haunted is a kind of central pillar of this movie. I feel like if you, if you put it like a little scene like that before the actual credits of the film and then before the, the actual opening, you know, that, then I'm assuming that it means something, that that's the filmmaker trying to instill like a little clue or a little perspective or point of view or frame of reference from which you, you know, some information that you can take with you in your, in the journey that's yeah. ahead. I remember like Dune did the same where even before the studio logo, you had this one sentence voiceover from the guys that talked really strange, the kind of the throat right. voice and it's, you know, it says, I don't remember exactly what it said, something like dreams are... Dreams are messages from the deep. Yeah. Is the yeah, opening line. Which I think is also kind of a pivotal aspect to understanding that movie. And, you know, that's at least like for me, I, I, I'm always assuming that's not put there because, you know, I, I, I'm assuming that it means something. If you're going to make the effort to open your movie with something like that, then yeah, um, I kind of have to assume that it's significant. This episode was brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service showing hand-picked exceptional films from around the globe, which both Thomas and I have been big fans of for many, many years. MUBI is a great library that I love to explore. They have a ton of fantastic films. And this week for Valentine's Day, they have a playlist called In the Mood for Love with a great selection of romantic films. There's some that I love on here in the US. They have Before Midnight, Guess Who's Coming for Dinner, and a ton of others that are worth checking out. Watch one of those great films or explore the rest of Mubi's excellent library when you start your free trial today. Yeah, you can get a 30-day extended free trial when you go to mubi.com slash cinema of meaning or just follow the link in the show notes. Thanks again to Mubi for sponsoring this episode of Cinema of Meaning. Okay, so this is the this is the opening text. Um, we see the bubble on the left says, this is over the image of her sleeping. The bubble on the left says, what time did she get up this a.m.? And then the reply is, I wasn't with her. S was, uh, the bubble on the left says, our girl, an early riser, isn't she? And then they reply, haunted. Ha, you mean she has a conscience? Maybe. Mm -hmm. And then you still love her then. And I can't quite work out I can't quite work out who the two people are because the you still love her then line, it seems like would be directed at Francesca because mm. it does not seem like the celloist is in. This is getting into the weeds of the movie <laughs> yeah. pretty quickly. <laughs> so maybe we should back it up. But anyway, I think like the key to that is the haunted line and kind of this question of like somebody is with her observing her. Yeah. And like, there's this question of like them grappling with their love for her mm -hmm. in, in spite of kind of this sort of also critical eye. And that's mm -hmm. something I think we'll see throughout where, you know, I think especially for, for Francesca, there's this, we don't get many glimpses of it, but there's this grappling of like love, but also you know, seeing her for who she is and kind of trying to square up those two things, which is mm -hmm. kind of part of the larger conversation that I think the movie is having about how we even interact with not just figures like this, but like also art in the past and sort mm -hmm. of interface with the the characters yep. versus the art itself or the artist versus the art itself. Mm -hmm. But the haunting yep. theme, I think, is is pretty clear to the point where there's even, I don't know if you saw it, I didn't catch it the first time, but there's a scene where we actually see like a ghost or some kind of figure in the apartment where she goes to to compose. The mm. first time she goes there and lights the candles, yeah. immediately after that she like walks, I'm pretty sure that's the scene, she walks through the apartment and in the background, like half hidden behind a corner, you can see a woman standing there who I assume is, I think it's Krista Taylor. Hmm. But there's like a, 
Oh, uh, I, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Because she's pretty like square. I didn't notice it until somebody pointed it out in a in like a TikTok I saw or something. That's like a haunted on Hill House uh, kind of stuff. Did you see that show? I've yeah. seen uh, like a couple episodes. Mm. I haven't seen the whole thing. Mm. But she that that ghost is back there, and then she starts composing, and like, and then she, she like thinks she like feels something or sees something, and she does that like brushing thing. So anyway, mm. the haunting part is even kind of literally conveyed. Uh, to yeah, some extent yeah. in the movie, even if it isn't literal, you know, maybe that's part of we're seeing kind of her subjective experience yeah. uh, to some extent. It's not a literal uh, ghost. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, yeah. we're kind of we're kind yeah. of in the, the nitty gritty weeds of the movie. So maybe we should. I have one final note on the okay. that opening shot and then I'll let it go. Because uh, the, the one thing that I also thought was interesting or kind of set, what set it apart is that it's it's not just people texting each other it's texting while she's being live streamed and i felt like there's also a sort right. of commentary maybe there about how people's lives are now continuously like under the loop as it is happening i feel like that kind of it ties more directly into the cancellation stuff that now every act right. that you do there's no more shadows to hide in like everything is being your life is quite literally live streamed especially in your yeah. position if you're in a position of power then you might find yourself in a position like that, where at least where it feels like that uh, you're constantly, uh, as if you're constantly being live streamed by someone else, and there's con constantly being comments made about whatever it is that you do. Which I'm not sure how that ties into the rest, but I feel, or, or is that just like a specifically like a small commentary on modern life and the way social media plays into that? Which also comes, uh, I guess, we get this nice segue into the. Uh, one of the other earlier scenes where she is in the classroom debating not just social media, but also kind of role of identity within art and within life in general and how social media, I guess, relates to that. Yeah. Um, which is a scene that's talked about a lot. And, you know, I, I can understand why it's a very, for one, it's a very well-crafted scene. It's like this really meticulous long take and there's a lot of staging there and lots of um, or a very good payoff in my opinion and it also it's it's something that comes back to haunt her later in the movie in an also quite yeah. interesting way but yeah what was your first reading or your general take on that scene i think that scene is really interesting for the reasons you mentioned in terms of how it's shot which is important then i think it's not just a stylistic choice i think mm. shooting it that way is kind of important because it kind of emphasizes the way it's chopped up later. Like it allows us to kind of, I don't know, more immediately understand. I, I don't know. It just creates an interesting juxtaposition when it's then edited later and we see that version of it. But it's a scene that engages with this discussion around, you know, what do we do with art like from people like Mozart and Bach and when any kind of problematic figure who has been you know, canonized and who has created this art that has maybe impacted us emotionally or has been influential, you know, is revered as great. You mm. have the kind of the central character who, or the the focus of the scene, this young student, they're kind of objecting to, to Bach, are sort of saying like, I can't resonate with that because of who they were as a person. And then Lydia... Tar is kind of making this counter argument and saying, yes, but you have to contend with the music yourself. And I think it's a, it's a great scene in that that discussion does not fall too far into caricature, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit in the direction of the student, I think. But yeah, like her response, actually, I think this is one of the more interesting things the movie has done. I don't agree ultimately with everything she says, but I think her response is like one of the better kind of versions of the argument you could make for how we have to approach art like that. Like mm -hmm. it's not always so easy to set aside these works from problematic people because because of the art itself. And like you listen to yeah. it and you're moved by it and then you're like, oh, no, what do I do how do I square these two things up? So I think, you know, my feeling watching that was like, oh, she's making, she's 
Todd Field is putting in her mouth some words that I think kind of make sense to some extent and you might resonate with. And I say that hesitantly because within the context of the whole scene, everything she's doing and saying is not good. Then like over the course of the film, you see kind of the hypocrisy of what she's saying. I think the film as a whole kind of makes is making like a counter argument to what she's saying. But I and and I have this conversation in my mind about these things, you know, because I think mm-hmm. politics aside, I think it's a very personal thing that a lot of people have to grapple with. You know, I've grappled with this on my own thinking about like movies that I've watched from people that I've loved that then they, you know, you find out things about them and you're like, how do I emotionally within myself, obviously it's horrible the things that happened in these cases where you find out about it and you feel terrible for the actual circumstances and the victims. But then there's also within yourself a personal grappling with this piece of art and what I know about this person. And that's that's not an easy, like, I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes I'm like, okay, you know, dust my hands of that. I don't need that thing anymore. I can set it aside. I don't care mm-hmm. about them anymore. Um, and it, it, like, taints the entire, like, work. And then other times it's more difficult. It's not as easy to just sort of write off the work b- because of the artist. And I think Lydia Tarr does, does a decent job of, like, hitting on some of the point, some of the reasons why that can be the case. She does it in a real, like, <laughs> she's being an yeah. asshole, basically. I, I feel my like my issue with scenes like that is usually that it feels too much like that the filmmaker is speaking through the character instead of the character themselves. And I feel like, especially in this movie, it, it, does, it does kind of feel a little bit like this is also what Todd, like the director, might believe at least to some extent but then there's like a conflict when he kind of vocalizes that through a character that he ultimately and overall like condemns that's what i think is interesting about it is at first i felt that way at first i was like oh wow todd field is just out here like telling us what he thinks about art he's also deconstructing that character so i think ultimately ultimately i think it's something more interesting in the sense that i think he's He's presenting these ideas through the mouth of a problematic character in order to, like, make us engage with them in a way that doesn't allow us to just kind of, like, take them in a very simplistic way. Mm -hmm. And then also maybe to some extent is kind of having that dialogue within himself throughout the course of this movie, you know, and, and isn't giving us, like, an easy clarity, isn't just saying it's this or it's this. Mm-hmm. Is saying like here, you know, here's how I might feel sometimes, but also then, you know, those things are being spoken by this this horrible character yeah. who's abusing their power, and maybe even who doesn't. I think the other thing that complicates it a little bit more, uh, and then I'll, I'll let you talk, <laughs> is <laughs> maybe even to some extent, Lydia Tarr does not fully engage with these ideas in the way that she's saying. I think that's the first example of like. I get the feeling throughout this movie, there's a lot of stuff she says that she does not actually like put into practice in her life and is mm. kind of a hypocrite. Oh, yeah, about. definitely. So, yeah. like in that example, she's talking about contending with the music itself emotionally. I get the feeling throughout the le- rest of the film that she's not actually contending with the music that much. Like her life at this point is about everything but the music to some mm. extent. And that's part of the arc of the film, I think. Yeah, there's some conflict there where, you know, I'm watching this even the second time around, like I'm inclined to agree with what Dar says in that scene or in that discussion. Uh, She has some like some really great lines. The one that says, uh, don't be so eager to be offended. The narcissism of small differences leads to the most boring kind of conformity. You know, even I don't know exactly what she means by that, but she does get like all the good lines in that scene. But like on a second thought, I also felt like the scene is it, it kind of it presents as a dialogue, but also not really because there's also the okay. She is the one in the power position there. She is the teacher. Yes. He's the student. She's the one yeah. on the platform. He's sitting on the bench. So there is a kind of skewed dynamic between them where there isn't a genuine discussion. I feel like about 
what it really means to separate the art from the artist and kind of the, the pros and cons of that. It's really just, you're really only seeing the one-sided, you know, Lydia's right. side, which is also why you're probably inclined with her because she gets, she basically gets to say her argument without Peace, a yeah. truly like measured response to that. And so that's something, I, I, I'm not sure if that was intentional or if that's just just ever so slightly skewing into that territory of kind of showing the Wokies that they've gone too far and kind of slamming that culture a little bit or that's part of our culture a little bit. I don't think that was the intent and that's not like my reading of it, but I feel like there's, I'm, I'm not sure if that, like there's a genuine enough room there for a discussion to really elevate that scene beyond you know, beyond just right, agreeing right. with Lydia, because I feel like most people walking away from that scene, you know, I've seen people quoted on Twitter, they see it as a kind of, you know, the, the Ben Shapiro video where he slams <laughs> yeah, a student, yeah. like, he, yeah, like yeah. a video, like... Lydia Tarr destroys yeah, student. Uh, destroys yeah. SJW, uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure if that... It's kind of the conflict that I always have with movies that try to portray something that they ultimately condemn, but then there's always that sequence early on where they kind of want to show the appeal of it as well and then they might that part might be just a little bit too appealing where right. it the clarity becomes a little bit muddy about is this a critique or is this an endorsement or is this am I supposed to agree with this or am I supposed to question why I agree with this or maybe I'm not even supposed to agree with it at all maybe it's you know that there's a lot of layers there which I for me kind of complicated but now this, none of this is to detract from the movie. I feel, I still think right, it's right. a fascinating scene, but it's I'm, I'm just interested in kind of exploring the the true feelings that this kind of writing invokes and how you kind of what it means to put characters in on different uh, in different high, like power dynamics to each other in different hierarchies or different forms of platforms, and then what that means for how you interpret the ultimate message of what is being said. I have a few more thoughts on that scene before we completely move mm. on from it. I think that's part of why I said I think the portrayal of the student is almost tips into that realm of caricature. Uh, and I agree with what you're saying in that that scene is not actually a dialogue on the subject. I think the dialogue comes into play more so in like how that scene position is positioned within the the movie as a whole and what the movie as a whole is saying. I can't speak mm -hmm. to other people and I have seen literally people taking that clip from that movie out of context and like putting it online like it's, you know, here's why cancel culture is is bad, which to me is just a hilariously ironic misreading of that scene. Like we're supposed to have a little bit of conflicted feelings about that scene to some extent would be like, oh, maybe maybe she is making a point. But then the I think we're supposed to see her behavior in that scene, the way she's treating that mm -hmm. student, regardless of what the validity of what she's saying, the way she's treating that student is gross and inappropriate. And then I also like for me personally, I I liked the way that scene was positioned within the arc of the film for my understanding of the character. Uh, because going in, knowing nothing, you're not immediately thinking, oh, this is a terrible person who should be canceled. Like, I didn't know where the movie was going. I didn't know she was going to be can canceled. I didn't know, you, you know, so you're slowly mm -hmm. gathering these pieces of like, oh, maybe she is not like great. And that kind of starts to snowball as the movie goes along. So I don't know. I liked I liked that it felt a little bit like Todd Fields was playing with that dynamic to some extent where he kind of he's not just kind of setting her up from the beginning as a horrible person completely, although the clues are there. He wants to kind of lure you into like wanting to respect her on some level. And then he's cutting that down later, which to me is is like a more interesting way of engaging with. Uh, like what cancellation can actually feel like sometimes from the audience perspective where it's like, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, there's this person out in the world who who does work and you, you know, if you're interested in their world, you might engage with that work and appreciate it and maybe even respect it. And then you have to contend with who that person actually is. 
And I think this movie is kind of doing that same thing. Like the new the the New Yorker opening interview too is is a good example mm-hmm. of that where it's like it's kind of setting you up to sort of like trick you into being like, oh wow, she's she might she's kind of thoughtful and has some things to say. And then like it's cutting that and slowly disintegrating that, which I appreciated. Maybe, you know, pe- people's experience is going to be different mm-hmm. based on how they perceive things. And it does, it that's a messy maneuver to try to like, to, to pull off. It's a complicated. Yeah. It has me thinking about that opening shot again, where it, the text says, like, do you still love her? And I'm right. kind of wondering to what extent it's also yes. directed at the audience. Yes. Yeah. Because it, it's kind of this POV shot. And so you're, you're the one who's receiving the text in a way. And you're the one who's watching this movie in real time, or at least in the, the movie's real time. One last thing I'll say about that scene. I got this sense, especially watching it the second time, because you, the second time watching this movie, I will say, is a very different experience, or at least it was for me, because I knew nothing the first time going in. But then you read a lot of it differently, knowing kind of who she is as a person, I think, the first time around. So there's there's stuff in her behavior at the beginning of the movie, the second time watching it, where I was like, oh, I should have picked up on the fact that she's not a good person a lot faster. But I think I kind of like was giving her the benefit of the doubt the first time I was watching it longer. In that scene, I think one of the interesting things is later on, it gets chopped up, edited, and put on social media. She That's part of her, quote unquote, her cancellation. And when that happens, she's taken completely out of context. Like that video, like misconstrues what she's saying. Mm-hmm. It, like it makes it seem like she is saying really racist things directly to the student uh, and being like sexually inappropriate, which she wasn't really doing. Like it is genuinely twisting her words, but we were there in a sense and had this more objective view. And I think one of the interesting things is like, it's true that she was taken out of context, but for me watching it and seeing the full version of that scene, it also feels true to me that she's using her power in an inappropriate way and being gross anyway. So it's like, Mm -hmm. it's an interesting, I think that's an interesting commentary on how sometimes things can get twisted out of context. You know, that might even allow sometimes the person who's being canceled to be like, oh, well, you, you, you took what I was saying out of context. But that can be true. And it can also be true that they were being inappropriate and abusing their power anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to add to that, I think one thing that is also, I'm just thinking of this now, so I'm kind of walking through it as I'm talking about it. But the the thing about that clip is that it's kind of this chopped up version. And as you said, it's taken out of context. But at the same time, I wonder to what extent the movie is also a sort of chopped up version of some of a larger context that we're missing. Like we're, right. we're basically watching that if that whole, the whole movie is basically that clip at the end, there's a lot of stuff that's, yeah. that we weren't there for. Like there's the, her whole sexual impropriety, what's that word? Impropriety? Imper- yes. That's, um, you know, there's this scene at the very beginning where there's these, uh, albums on the floor and she's kind of her foot touches, uh, the one of Francesca, I think. We assume it's Francesca. We don't see, so we don't really know. And, and you know, at the end, it's mentioned like that. That clip, you know, it, you're probably right. That's taken out of context. It's obviously like chopped into pieces. But that's not, you know, that's not the the thing that matters here. You know, they say that quite literally. It's like they got all these responses from like people she worked with and people yeah. she kind of sort of groomed and just was generally like abusive towards. And that's kind of the story that really matters. And I feel like right. that's also in the same way that that's left out of the context of that, that little clip in the same time. It, it same In the same way, that's also left out of the movie in a sense. It's only hinted at and we only see like little bits and pieces. And we have this kind of constructed image at some point that's also to some extent falsified and not showing us yeah. the true context of this. Uh, at least if you're watching the first time and you're kind of, as you said, you know, you you, you don't know ne- necessarily that this is going to be a cancellation story. Right. Um, that doesn't happen until, I think, right up until that point where it 
you know, she's seen having, you, you can kind of guess she's having an affair and there, there's the little hints that she uh, kind of like put that former student of hers oh, on like black blacklist, blacklisted, yeah, yes, yeah. which led to her suicide eventually. You know, she, you, you do get hints that she's not a great person, but at the same time, you're also, you're, you're still not grasping the full context, I think, of her. Yeah. This being like just a few incidents of like a larger pattern right. that is that is what is eventually like causing her comeuppance at the end you do i think the most powerful argument against her that the movie gives you is as it goes along you start to just gain a sense of all the tiny manipulations of her power that she uses uh like there's the way she takes her her wife's pills and then hmm. you know comes back and lies about it the way she confronts that the bully of her child those are the more like explicit examples but then there are also these smaller moments of manipulation the movie doesn't necessarily like point a big red arrow towards mm -hmm. you just kind of have to see her like because nobody's talking about it um and i think this is the one of the more interesting things about the structure of the movie is like there aren't open conversations where the characters are debating oh did she do this thing was it bad or was it good like very often i mean there's that one scene in the boardroom we get a few little snippets here and there but for the most part like our judge the her character is left up to our judgment and seeing kind of these little moments of oh she lied about that oh she's She's skirting around this system that's put in place to keep her from, like, making a biased judgment. She's constantly trying to, like, weasel her way around sort of the demo the democracy that's supposed to be in place of the, the, of, of the orchestra. So there's all these little tiny things, and it's like no one thing that you could point to and be like, oh, that's this horrific, mm -hmm. terrible thing. But as it yeah. builds up over time, you get a sense of just the way in which she personally interacts with her power and and mm -hmm. that kind of thing yeah one question i wanted to ask you was because you mentioned about that scene at the at juilliard you know how it, it kind of she's the one getting to do the talking it's kind of from her perspective i think you could expand that question out to to the movie as a whole what do you think we gain from this story being told or why tell this story sort of like from tar's subjective perspective versus mm. the victim or something like that I'm not, I'm not sure what if there's a real benefit to seeing her perspective specifically with for the purpose of displaying the kind of abusive power dynamic that she engages in or the kind of abusive behavior in general i guess maybe that it does show especially in hindsight like it shows a lot of little red flags that and you can kind of see like just like hints at then what might even be more obscured if you're seeing it from other persons, like the person who's on the other end of it. Like, let's say if this movie was from the perspective of her partner, then, you know, we would even be more oblivious probably about what is really going on with her character. But now, as you said, we see the little manipulations. We see that she kind of sneaks away the little pills and she does... She has, she does, makes all these little white lies or, you know, they seem like little lies, but, you know, they stack up over time and it feels more like this pattern where she's constantly manipulating. But aside from that, I think the most interesting part about seeing her perspective is that you can see the struggle with conscience and that it kind of, right. it does humanize her a little bit, which I'm not sure if that's, you know, a lot of people who would who have been on the other end of a abusive partner or boss or whatever would be, I can understand that they are not interested in humanizing the abuser. But if you kind of on the layer of just seeing this story as the kind of the crime and punishment type of story, the more universal right. tragedy, then I do like that we get seeing it from her perspective. We do get to kind of dig into her subconscious and kind of humanize her in a way that you can not necessarily sympathize. It's I don't feel like this is a character that you feel sorry for at the end, but you do understand her behavior to some extent. I was thinking about what you said earlier about her or about Lydia 
saying a lot of things that she ultimately doesn't really do. And I have, I was thinking about this one line there where um, she says to that student, yeah, she says, you, you got to sublimate yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. You know, that that's a huge part of what had me agreeing with her in that speech. But then right. I was thinking about it and it feels like, as you said, that that's not what she does at all. It feels like from the beginning, we're seeing Tar, the brand, you know, the composer, the Oscar winner, the Emmy winner, the the other uh, winners of all kinds of awards. And she's constantly like busy with her legacy, her grand series of not compositions, but uh, performances and, and the way the little manipulations where she's kind of constantly trying to bend the world to her own perceived reality instead of doing the opposite, which would be to actually obliterate yourself and yes. um, to actually humiliate humiliate yourself in front of other people, which I feel like that's the reason she causes her downfall specifically because she doesn't do that. She's such a hypocrite in that sense where she's kind of preaching this ethos of it's about the music, not the people. Or like you can sidestep the identity of the composer or who they were and engage with the music directly because that's what it's about. But what she models in her life that we see in the movie is essentially uh, like she's modeling herself after these composers. Like she's building herself up into this image. Like Mm -hmm. that is what she actually has a nostalgia for, not the music itself, but the composers, there's a desire to have to engage with the music. And maybe at some point she did. And I think that's why at the end where she goes back home, she puts in the video cassette, she, she has this like breakdown and tears because she has this moment of realizing the music is what it's about, but everything she's doing is not about that. You know, that moment where she comes in and like tackles the, the replacement guest composer Mm -hmm. She does it at exactly those this specific time. She like times it to happen at this crescendo that kind of connects to at the beginning. She's talking about I have this impeccable sense of timing where she's portraying herself almost like a god who just knows, you know, oh, it's not this thing I'm discovering. It's it's I know exactly when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's speaking in this these terms of like I'm this god, and she and I think in doing that act in that specific way in this timing with this music where she's tackling the composer with everything she's doing not not with what she's saying but with everything she's doing she's saying you know the music is divine and i'm the music and she's like Mm -hmm. putting herself in this place of like you know just being god there's also that little moment with the where she takes the photo for her album cover and then she looks at a couple and then she sees like oh let's try something a little less considerate and then the exact (laughs) copy of someone else (laughs) yes yeah and it's and it's so considered they're like adjusting the lighting she's perfectly posed it's just like just a ridiculously big book that yeah (laughs) i'm not sure what what kind of book that is i guess it's some kind of sheet music uh yeah i think it's her score uh that she's that she's using or whatever there's also a very interesting moment we didn't talk about that comes pretty soon after that scene at juilliard where she's she has a dinner or lunch or something with like her mentor the older guy, he says something about some composer and then she's like, didn't he push somebody down the stairs or something? She's like mm. literally giving voice to like the same kinds of arguments that she was just arguing against. And there's a lot of little moments like that where she she's very inconsistent in kind of what she expresses or or how what she's saying lines up with, with what she's doing. Yeah. In the very first conversation, the interview, she also talks about uh, she talks about some other female composers and one being the sad story that ended, or she describes her story as the sad one because she ended up as the guest composer, right. which I guess was also a, a little hint as to where she ends up, which I guess is a good segue into maybe the, the final sequence where after everything is said and done, it it's not explicitly stated what happens. It, it does feel like she loses her family and kind of moves on her own to... I'm not sure where it was, somewhere in Asia, maybe Thailand or Vietnam or something, where she ends up as the guest composer for a video game score. But at the same (laughs) time, she does, 
you know, there is a sense that she feels the tragedy of what happened to her. You know, she kind of, there's that moment where she goes for a massage and she ends up vomiting at the sight of this young woman that reminds her maybe of the celloist. Also, it's this like massage parlor place mm -hmm. that I'm assuming the subtext I was reading in there is that it's a massage parlor in the sense that it operates as like a brothel. There's this fishbowl, they call it, where she's directed to stand in front of this, this kind of semicircle of young women. It's the exact same format as a uh, orchestra. It's like mm -hmm. they're curving around her and she even has her like hand up kind of to choose as if she's about to like conduct or something. Yeah. And then this one, this one girl who looks up that you mentioned kind of looks like the cellist and is almost in the same spot mm -hmm. that the cellist sits in. So there's like a reflection of that. I was just going to say, do you think at that moment she's kind of recognizing what she's, what she's been doing, sort of the way she's been using this like position mm -hmm. of power that she has for her own like sexual gratification? I think it's deliberately left a little bit ambiguous. What I was going to say is that there's, you know, at the same time that we see that happening, there's also a scene where she's discussing the score that she's about to conduct with the uh, musicians that are there. And then she still seems right. to have that kind of passion. Okay, let's really go into what the intention is of this, of, of the, the composer. What What is the music right. going to say? And then at the end, it's, you know, it's this cosplay right. yeah, performance. Yeah. It's it's everything that she herself would see as beneath her, but still there's there's still like this little part of her that seems to find some dignity or purpose within it. But it is clear that she's kind of rock bottomed and that maybe that scene at the parlor is that moment of recognition that, okay, you know, she might even like up until then, she might have been pretending like she's just maneuvering into this new phase of her life or you know right. i think just before that there's a scene where some guy is talking to her about uh trying to spin the whole situation by saying like oh you need you know you just need a new story and we i yeah. feel like at that point she may, might still be feeling sh like she's just wiggling her way out of a bad situation but uh yeah that scene at the parlor might be like it is some kind of breaking point where she realizes that something that she used to have is now probably gone forever. And just also right. not just the, her livelihood and the career, but also kind of the brand that we talked about earlier that she was trying to build uh, yeah. for herself as one of the great living conductors is, uh, is also kind of uh, fallen into ruins. Except ironically, she kind of totally lives up to <laughs> the image that a lot of them <laughs> had, yeah. at least you know, according mm -hmm. to the, at least the ones that are highlighted, uh, the toxic ones that are highlighted throughout this movie. One open, very open question I have in my mind about this this movie or this character, I guess, is the mm -hmm. extent to which she sort of has deceived herself throughout the film. Like, we don't get a good sense of, you know, when she's lying to these other characters or when she's she's kind of like, She's kind of portraying this, oh, I would never, you know, manipulate, I would never grant certain positions because, you know, I'm attracted to these women or whatever, while she's actively kind of doing that. And it's it's unclear to me if she if she really actually recognizes what she's doing or if she's sort of deceived her actually deceived herself, you know, thinks that she is, hmm. you know. She is in the right. I feel like every person in that position has the conviction that they can wiggle their way out of it, that they can... Yes. It, it's not necessarily that they feel righteous or that they feel... Or that they are deliberately, like, aware of, okay, I did something wrong, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm now actively covering it up. It, I feel like it's just people who do live in this kind of state of denial where you know if i just delete all these emails that incriminate me then the whole thing will probably go away that go away, kind yeah. of attitude that she um demonstrates throughout the, the most part of this movie so I'm, I'm not sure how to describe that it's a kind of there's denial there i think maybe some level of deliberate or willful ignorance 
but I, I don't think those people would see themselves as being actively malevolent. They might. Right. That's right. me thinking of um, the discussion that we had a while back on Barbarian, where, you know, people in like th those kinds of abusive people would often see, you know, they, they always try to spin the story as I'm the good guy or I'm the good person, but, right. you know, but something, you know, it's, there's either this, it, it was, something was misconstrued or something was taken out of context, you know, but maybe I crossed the line here, but now I've learned, now I'm better. Like, I, I don't think there's ever any true doubt in the hearts of these people. And I think that's mo true for most people that they are deep down like a bad person. Like, I, I don't think there's many people who would say that about themselves. I feel like everyone wants to believe that they are innately good, or at least, you know, uh, even if they did wrongs, you know, they still like to believe like, yeah. oh, I, I've, I've, I've taken a wrong turn, but I'm trying to be better, you know, something like that. Or, or they have some kind of exception, like it's in service of, like, I think, I think about like the situation in this movie with the celloist, mm. it's like they do these, she subtly manipulates things so that the celloist gets to audition. And then it's like, the celloist was the better audition. So like you could see how sh from her perspective, she would be like, well, it, you can always kind of justify what you're doing. And then she also simultaneous while the celloist is like, while she's putting the celloist in this position pretty explicitly because she wants, you know, is trying to at least get the attention of or affection of this celloist. She's simultaneously not giving Francesca the the assistant conductor position. So you can see how kind of maybe in sh her own mind, she was like, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not granting sexual favors because look, I did this. I, I didn't give her that mm -hmm. job. If I was that kind of person, I would have done that. You know, it's just like people have the ability to do that kind of like post hoc reasoning. But I think you're right that most people, most people try to maintain this sense of like, oh yes, I, I am good. I am justified or Oh, mm. that was just a little mistake or something like that. I feel that might also be why so many of those people fall into kind of this state of victimhood whenever they shit hits the fan, so to say. Uh, because that's what she, the, the first time like she's conf or Lydia was confronted with suicide of the other conductor or, or woman, she, is, she immediately goes on the defensive like, oh, she was... She wasn't yeah. right in her head. She was trolling me online. She was sending me weird gifts. And, it, it, you know, she was all but saying, like, this was her own fault. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, like, the one who was the yeah. victim in this situation. I think that is the interesting thing about telling the story from the perspective of the person in power, you know. And I think mm -hmm. it's good to be sensitive towards what doing that can mean, I think if you're going to do that, you have to be careful. Um, and I can see why people on the other side of that experience might find that offensive or, or harmful. But I also think it's really valuable to kind of examine, especially in this way, where it's, it's really well laid out and nuanced enough, how yep. these characters get themselves into those situations and how kind of the environment around them and the, the institution itself kind of enables it in a certain way and that how these structures of power work and not being naive to the ways in which those same dynamics can play out in our own lives even if we think oh i'm never somebody who's going to be the head of an orchestra and be you know doing this terrible stuff i'll never be canceled it's like these same dynamics can play out on a much smaller level within ourselves wherever we have power or or something like that and i think seeing seeing how that happens for another person can be a, a powerful way to kind of reflect on how our own relationship to those people and our own power thank you all for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you want to help us keep the podcast going be sure to follow us on our creator-owned streaming service nebula cinema of meaning is a nebula original which means that every episode comes out an entire week early so right now if you're listening to this in the public feed you can 
already listened to the next episode of the show ad-free on Nebula. On Nebula, you'll also get access to our monthly bonus episode. We've talked about Damien Chazelle's Babylon, Avatar The Way of Water, All Quiet on the Western Front, and a bunch of other great films. Those episodes are only available on Nebula. When you listen on Nebula, you get even a little private RSS feed that you can plug into your podcast player so you can listen the way you normally listen to podcasts with the Nebula feed. Check that out. The information it can be found in the description below or by going to nebula.tv slash cinema of meaning. And we'll talk to you next time.